As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey everyone, and welcome into Power Hour, uh, part of the Until Saturday Network. I'm Nicole Auerbeck. He's Chris Vanini. Before we get started here, reacting live to this week's CFP rankings, the last set of rankings before the real ones on Sunday, I want to remind you all to be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love a five-star review or questions. We'll answer them on the show. If you subscribe to Until Saturday on YouTube, you can watch all of our live shows and you get notifications for them because we go live uh, for these shows, we will be live on Sunday after the selections are announced on ESPN. Also, obviously, we have the Sunday Sound Off show and picks shows. So you're going to want to see all of that on YouTube. You can leave us a voicemail at any point as well for that Sound Off show. Wanted to also let you know that we are running a gift subscription over at The Athletic. A one-year gift subscription is only $19.99. You can give someone two years for $39. 99 by visiting theathletic.com slash gift sale. While you're there, you can also sign up for our Until Saturday newsletter, where you'll get your daily fill of college football news right into your inbox. Okay, let's dive in, Chris. This is an interesting set of rankings. This is the last one we're going to get before they give us the real thing on Sunday. This is what we have heading into conference championship weekend. Georgia stays at number one, Michigan at number two. Washington at three, Florida State back into the top four at number four. Number five, Oregon. Number six, Ohio State. Texas at seven, Alabama at eight. These are the teams that have a chance for the college football playoff, no matter how long the shot is. Let's start with Ohio State. They go from two last week. They lose to Michigan on the road. They fall to six. Is that where you thought they were going to be? Is it? Are they high? Are they low? What do you make of the Buckeyes? It's interesting but also like largely irrelevant where Ohio State is because all the other one loss teams are playing so like either they will win and move ahead of Ohio State or lose and be behind Ohio State at the end I put Ohio State at five in my rankings I think you can make a case that they have the most impressive one loss resume to this point um based on where things are putting them behind Oregon but ahead of Texas and Alabama is a little weird because you could make a case that Texas and Alabama actually have the most impressive resumes. 
but Texas has that loss and or Alabama has that loss. So it's it's interesting. There is a slight opening for Ohio State, as much as some people think they are gone. If Michigan wins, if uh, Georgia wins, if Washington wins and Florida State loses and Texas loses and to Texas Oklahoma State. Loses. I, yeah. th- I think that's the scenario. And that's I've been arguing with our colleague Stuart Mandel on Slack because he was convinced that they had no shot. But that is the scenario for Ohio State. There's a lot of things that need to happen, but they're alive to, again, possibly backdoor into the playoff. Um, as you mentioned, it's, un- it's, though, unlike- it's unlikely. I do not think Oklahoma State has much of a chance against Texas, but anything's possible. I'll be there. So we'll listen, see. this is this is yeah, you're going to jinx it because you're going to go there and you were going to get a crazy game. But this is we're heading into a conference championship weekend that has higher stakes than I can think of. I mean, the first year you had Ohio State with a backup quarterback, uh, Texas and Baylor didn't play. That was the one true champion thing. I can't think of another weekend with this much still undecided, with this many teams still technically alive. And we can go through the path for each of them. But I think the key to a lot of these scenarios is Florida State. They're undefeated. They're playing Tate Rodemaker. This was his first start against Florida. And FSU struggled early, and then they figured some things out. It was really tough. Rivalry game. They get the win, and they come out of that game victorious. Um, this is, but, but a lot of people are rightfully pointing out that this is not the same team without Jordan Travis. It's not, they're not, they're not, but they're still unbeaten. They have Louisville who, by the way, stayed in the top 15 despite their loss. So that is a top 15 opportunity for Florida state in the ACC championship game. And they're in the top four right now coming off of that game, their first full game with their backup quarterback starting and playing. Now, Reese Davis was hosting ESPN's CFP show. He asked committee chair Boo Corrigan about Florida State with Tate Rodemaker. Here's what he had to say. How did the committee evaluate the Florida State team, particularly the way it played on offense against Florida Saturday night? Yeah, you know, different team, right? Different team without uh, Jordan Travis. Uh, Tate Rodemaker continues to, uh, in the game and a half, that he's been playing, has done well, has, has kind of managed the game. You know, Trey Benson getting three touchdowns during the course of that game, as we talked about last week. Uh, it's more than just one player, but obviously they're a, a different team without uh, Travis. Okay, so he said the phrase different team a lot. Is there any question, Chris, in your mind that if they beat Louisville and they're 13-0 and ACC champions, that they could be left out? To me, no. Uh, it, it's interesting that this gr- this set of rankings this season has to be the easiest they've ever done. They barely like moved. Really, the top eight is bar- the same the whole the ev- whole time. Everybody that matters pretty much has been the same, and they've not really had to do much. Now this coming weekend, they could again perhaps have to do nothing if Michigan, Washington, Georgia, Florida State win, or even if Oregon wins. It's easy, easy, easy. It's top four. four. That's yep. it. In, in in the last edition of the CFP Top 4, we might have the one chaos situation that we have avoided for 10 years. We will see. But I don't think Florida State winning, uh, being undefeated, and not getting in, I don't think it's a possibility. As, as much as I think that Florida State team perhaps gets shellacked by whoever they play in the playoff, I don't think the committee is going to take away an undefeated team from a Power 5 conference that has been in the Top 5 all year because yep. the quarterback went down. I don't think they would do it. This... 
the CFP, the four-team CFP, was not designed to leave out an undefeated Power 5 champion. You can say what you want about non-conference schedules, but that someone made it through a Power 5 conference schedule and got to the end and became the conference champion, that is supposed to matter. It is one of the pieces of the criteria. It's a feather in your cap. It's, I think, the only way that Florida State's Drop off without Jordan Travis impacts them is in seeding. And we saw we could see that if Oregon were to beat Washington and maybe jump to the three spot above Florida State at four, but it shouldn't impact selection. And I thought that that was another point that was made on the Tuesday show, I think by Reese, was that it doesn't matter if the team gets blown out after making the playoff. Like that's not, that's a different. Yeah factor well, than yeah. whether or not you deserve to be selected to make the four-team field. Yeah, Greg McElroy listed off several teams. It was like, they weren't the best team. They weren't one of the four best teams, and they got in. And so I, I mean, think but, there is a history of that. Yeah, no, I know, but that, but that's what I'm saying. Like it, The reasons those teams made the playoff are different than how they perform in the playoff. We've yeah. had so many blowouts. Yeah. We've had teams that were like kind of past their peak on the season, and like that, that doesn't justify or retroactively not justify a selection. Correct. Like we go through this with the basketball tournament all the time. So just want to make that point clear. Um, I want to pull up, let's pull up this comment from Chris Callahan. So this is about uh, Florida State. So he is saying that the committee better hope that Georgia doesn't lose because that is the only scenario where Florida State can get left out. So in this scenario, you've got a one-loss SEC champion Alabama, a one-loss non-champion Georgia, with a couple of what top fifteen, two top fifteen wins, I think at that point you'd have. Mm-hmm. Chris, what do you think about this? Do you think Florida State would actually be in danger? No, I, I don't think an undefeated Florida State is going to get left out. As weird as it might be, a situation where you could have an SEC team left out, like I think that's more likely than an undefeated Florida State team being left out. Not to say that Florida State is better than those two teams. I just don't think they're going to do it. I I just don't think they're going to do it. And along those lines, I mean, the debate, the other debate, which I don't think is a debate, is Texas or Alabama if it comes down to it. If Texas wins and Alabama beats Georgia, say there's one spot for one of them, who does it go to? It's Texas. It's got to be Texas. I don't see any way the committee would put Alabama ahead of Texas if Texas is 13-1 and and has a 10-point win in Tuscaloosa. I don't think they're going to do it. For all the talk that Ari and other people do about the regular season and the importance of the regular season, nothing would make the regular season more irrelevant than if yes. Alabama got into the playoff yep. over Texas with both of them winning their conference championships. I I, just, I don't think that's going to happen either. I completely agree. Um, and, and listen, I've gotten, I've done a 180 on this in the last 48 hours because two days ago I was like, you know what? If Alabama is a one loss SEC champ with a win over Georgia, who's the number one team in the country, the committee will put them in. But you're totally right. Because at that point you would have two one loss power five champions. They're in the same band. You have to compare them to each other and you would have to look at that head to head result. Otherwise, why would you play the game? Why would you ever play that game? Or next year, let's say in these new conferences, let's say Oregon plays Ohio state and Oregon loses to Ohio state in September. And then you get to the end of the year and go, well, it doesn't matter. It was September. Like you guys didn't count this last year. Like it does that that result didn't count. It didn't make any difference. And it was a double digit result and it was at home for Alabama. So that the committee has been consistent with these two teams from the very beginning of this season. Yep. Alabama has always been behind Texas. 
So you're right. That would have to play in. It would have to matter. Even if you wanted to give teams credit for getting better as the season went on, Alabama certainly has. But what's the point of playing these games, right? If, if you don't end up counting it in the one scenario where that matters. Because in all of these other scenarios that we can throw out there, Alabama's in. But that is the one, because you have a head-to-head result against one team that you would be directly compared to against. Now, we have a couple comments from folks wondering why Oregon is the top-ranked one-loss team. And they've been the top one-loss team also from the beginning. Committee has liked yep. them even when some of their losses have depreciated in value. So Reese Davis also asked Boo Corrigan about this. He asked specifically about Oregon and Texas. So let's hear, let's hear the, the committee chair. Texas has a strength of schedule that's about 40-plus spots better than Oregon's. They have more wins against uh, ranked teams by your rankings than, uh, than do the Ducks. Why is Oregon ahead of Texas? Yeah, Oregon has continued to dominate. Um, obviously, the loss to Washington early in the year, 36-33. But uh, coming out of last week in the way they played an Oregon State team that we really respect as a group, held them to uh, seven points as opposed to 34 which they have averaged on the year. And, uh, you know, the, the season Bo Nix is having um, 78% completion percentage. You know, they just continue to impress the committee with both the offense and the defense. What consideration was given to the common opponent that those two have? Texas beat Texas Tech by 50 and Oregon beat them by one possession. Yeah, we look at everything, as we've talked about each week. That, that we've been here. You know, we're not look, relying on one single data point, one single game. We're looking at, you know, we're through 13 weeks right now and making sure that as we do go through it, uh, we are comparing everything that, that's going on over the course of the year. Okay. Catherine B is making this point in the comment section that Washington looks phenomenal. They certainly passed the eye test. They have been blowing a lot of teams out. They really do have this incredibly high-powered and it can be very balanced offense. They have good defense. Basically, Boo Corrigan is all in on the Bo Nix Heisman campaign, it sounded like, throwing away out all of his stats and how well he's been playing. Um, I think that this committee just really likes Oregon because there was like their resume has not stacked up and it is not close to Texas's or Alabama in terms of the quality wins. Uh, but they have been above them this whole time. And what that means to me, Chris, is that the winner of Oregon and Washington is going to make the playoff. Like at that yeah. point, if this is the team that has been ranked above the other one loss teams, despite the resume not being as strong, playing a team that's in, they would be avenging their only loss. So they would have be- beaten everybody on their schedule and would be a conference champion. That's a slam dunk. And so that order does matter there, right? Because that's why Texas needs help. That's why Texas needs other things to happen, like a Florida State loss and some of these other dynamics to play in so that they can get a spot. Because I think the Pac-12 has locked up one of the top four spots. I think so, too. And Oregon's been the, the top one-loss team from the beginning. They, they, they have stayed there the whole time. In, in which case, I don't think there's nothing Texas can do now to leap an Oregon that wins. If Oregon beats Washington right. and Texas beats Oklahoma State, there's nothing Texas can do to get ahead of Oregon. Now, you can say they should be. You can make the case that right now, Texas should be ahead. But if Oregon beats Washington, Oregon should be ahead. It ultimately doesn't matter. But at this point, yeah, Oregon's going to go if if they win. And same goes for 
uh, Alabama. If you beat number one, or, or if you beat number one and Oregon beats number three, I don't think there's enough there for Alabama to leap Oregon either. So it does feel like Oregon's win or in. Look, Oregon, it, it, it's a different conversation if they beat Washington than it is now. Their best win is Oregon State. It's this past weekend. You know, USC has fallen off. Utah has fallen off. Uh, Arizona's, oh, sorry, sorry, best one might be Arizona. Uh, Oregon State uh, is in there as well. So they don't have many great wins like Texas does uh, or even Ohio State does. So you need some help. Again, this could be crazy on Saturday or it could be very easy, but I think it's yep. pretty clear. The committee has made it clear. If Oregon wins, they are in. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, let's put a couple of these comments up. I think they're really good. Here's from Pork Rinds. Love the name, by the way. If we all knew Alabama can beat Washington, Oregon, and Florida State, why are they ranked ahead of Alabama? I don't know about Oregon, by the way, as we throw these teams no. in here. Um, but, I mean, I think that this is, you know, it's it's something that you're going to come, you're going to face in a lot of years. Like, we just haven't had a lot of, like, really competitive races for these spots. But you are comparing teams with only 12 or 13 data points that have played different schedules. Like, you do have to have other factors that determine it, which is why, again, you've seen different conference champions and different conferences. Um, and, by the way, I would like just to point out, and I know, you know, you can throw out rivalry games and all that, but Alabama is fortunate that they are not a two-loss team. And that would yes. have entirely change the dynamics, fourth and yep. 31. So, for acting like they have just been extreme, they've just gotten better as the whole season has happened and they're just on this upward trajectory. No, they have played games just like Washington has had to escape. That was yep. as much of an escape as anybody else. Yep. That's an important point because I, I saw it was on first take or something today. Shannon Sharp was like, yeah, I know Alabama was had to escape Auburn, but that's a robbery game or whatever. What are you talking about? Auburn just lost by three touchdowns to New Mexico state and they needed to convert a fourth and 31. Do not tell me that Alabama uh, clearly is set well, up to and then also, things. then you can't. If you're going to use that argument, then you can't like Washington. Some you of their can excuse escapes, some of the Washington right? ones yeah. or some of the Texas ones with TCU and Kansas State and whatever. So yeah, every every all of the one loss teams have questionable escapes on their resume. Nobody's perfect. Uh, other than the, even the undefeated teams. Here's one other question from Zach F. Why would Alabama ever play a competitive non-conference game at the beginning of the year again? There is no chance for getting better. The argument goes both ways. I want to point out that this is going to change a little bit or significantly actually in a 12 team playoff era, because ideally teams will get more credit for strength of schedule and will get more credit for playing challenging games. 
You're also going to have really loaded SEC schedules and really loaded Big Ten schedules. Like those teams are good. Those schedules are just going to look different and they're going to be able to weather losses in a way that we don't see them do now. But like the reason you play that game is to put yourself in a position to win it and to get credit for playing it. But it was a home game and you lost by double digits like that part can't get excused away. So there is risk, which is why a lot of teams don't play these games, haven't scheduled games like this in the 14 playoff era. But it does need to matter because you can't just escape or, or sorry, throw away the result entirely and give Alabama all of the credit for playing the game, but losing like you need to the, the result of the game in a situation where you'd have a true head to head, like does need to impact the decision. And we've seen it not impact the decision in different years when the committee has said, like, these teams aren't compared to each other. Like if they're different groupings that are compared to, you know, other teams, they'll say like, okay, well, we're just not going to, we're not adhering to that. But they clearly think that Texas and Alabama are in the same grouping, that they're in the same band of school of teams. And so you'd have to think, Unless the committee went against kind of their own logic, the way they've approached this season and said, hey, Alabama's win over Georgia puts them in a different echelon than Texas's win over Oklahoma State. But they haven't done that based on the losses, based on their schedules so far. They've kept them in the same grouping. So that's why I default to saying that I think they would still use head to head if those two teams came down to it. I'll say the seeding of these teams is going to be really interesting, especially if Alabama beats Georgia, because if one of the SEC teams comes in, they'll probably be seated like three or four, and you're not going to want to face them if you're one or two. Like Ari Ari made the comment last year when the seeding came out that Georgia got the short end of the stick by getting uh, Ohio State instead of getting TCU. Now we know how the games turned out, but clearly Ohio State was a much tougher test for Georgia than TCU would have been, than TCU was. So... They're, they're, the seeding of this is going to be really interesting because if Washington wins, do they move up to two and Michigan to three? It may not really matter, but could impact location and stuff like that. If Florida State loses, who comes in? Is well, it, is about, it, would you rather play Oregon or would you rather play Washington? Or, or would you how, rather how play about this, though? Michigan? Florida, Florida State wins and you're Georgia. Do you still want to play in the Sugar Bowl? Or is Does that Florida, too close to Florida State? If Florida State wins and Oregon wins, does Florida State go up to three or do right. they stay at four? I think they would probably right, stay could, at four, get jumped by a one loss team. Yeah. And I think all of that, you know, again, impacts the semifinals and the way that those play out. Um, Chris, want to get your thoughts on the group of five race? Because I know you had some observations based on this top 25. Yeah, I think Liberty's got a shot here. Uh, there are a couple spots behind Tulane. If Tulane wins against SMU, uh, they're in, which makes sense. Um, SMU will be without quarterback Preston Stone, by the way, really good quarterback who was a season ending injury against Navy Tulane's, I think a five and a half point favorite. So if Tulane wins, they get the spot. It's most likely the peach bowl. And I think Penn state, they probably play if they lose to SMU and Liberty beats New Mexico state, who now has 10 wins, that'd be two wins against New Mexico state. I think there's a chance SMU does not jump Liberty. We we've kind of thought for a while. SMU may jump Liberty if they win, but SMU is not in the top 25. I mean, Liberty's 24 and we don't know how far back SMU is at 26 or beyond. So I don't think it's a guarantee that the American conference winner is in. I think Liberty's got a shot. Yes. Liberty has played a very, very weak schedule. Yes. 
SMU had played a weak schedule until these last couple of games, beating Memphis and then if they beat Tulane. Uh, so it'll be really interesting what that group of five spot comes down to. If it's SMU, I think there's a chance they go to the Cotton Bowl, by the way. I know they normally don't do two straight G5 hosts for one of those uh, bowl games, but you'd probably rather have SMU in the Cotton Bowl than out the Peach Bowl. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes as well. So the American Championship game is the one to watch for the group of five. If Tulane wins, they're in. If not, Liberty, if they win and they're 13-0, have a shot. Would they put a two-loss SMU ahead of a undefeated Liberty? That's kind of been the assumption, but after seeing these rankings, I'm not so sure. Lots to play for this weekend. Um, we've been super excited for some of these matchups. Really been hoping since they played the first time that we get Oregon, Washington. We've looked forward to Georgia, Alabama. Like it's going to be a super fun weekend. Massive stakes. Hopefully, there's a little chaos. I would like to see the committee have to earn their keep. I would like to see them have to make a decision this year, but we will see. If that happens, if it comes down to that, as a reminder, I mentioned this at the top of the show, but we will be live on Sunday after the committee puts out the top four until Saturday, YouTube page, be there. It'll be Ari. It'll be Ubin. They might have guests. Who knows? Um, but we will be covering that live. You'll also be wanting to read the athletic. We'll have a live blog. We'll have instant analysis. You'll want to catch all of that. But this has been a blast to do this on Tuesday nights with you, Chris. Um, it's been fun to do a live power hour segment each week. So we wanted to thank everyone who has spent time in the comment section, who's watched this with us, who've engaged. Uh, it's been really fun. And for anyone who is watching right now, you can catch the second half of the Power Hour episode. It'll be on your feeds, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts uh, by morning. So be sure to check out the rest of the episode. We dive into coaching changes and a number of other things that have happened in college football this week. All right, now we will move into our happy hour segment. We talk about something that is exciting, something that brings us joy, something that brings some people in this sport joy, and it's the hope of a new coach that that their school got it right, that they are going to rebuild, reload, whatever that might be with a new head coach. And I think that we are seeing some very smart, logical hiring decisions so far in this cycle so let's start with the first coach to be hired over the past weekend, and that is Jonathan Smith, goes from Oregon State to Michigan State. Chris, you and I did our special search firm crossover episode with Max, and Jonathan Smith was our recommendation. We convinced Max that we thought that this made the most sense, the fit would make sense, uh, the blue-collar, you know, build, develop, understanding of being at the second state school in a state, uh, in-state rivalries, all those things. We thought that that Jonathan Smith had it all. Michigan State does hire him. So what do we make of this hire? Yeah, I mean, first, I think we deserve our search firm fee, the until Saturday search firm USSF for that recommendation. Free. I think we did this one for free. Oh, shoot. We should have. We should have uh, done a better job of that. We should have gotten that in writing. Got some money. Um, yeah, look. This look with the caveat that you don't know for sure that any single coach is going to work because there's a long history of them not. I would say in terms of what Michigan State wanted to get out of its next coach, it got exactly that. Jonathan Smith, for people who don't know, is like the most normal dude you've ever met as a head coach. Like I, I went up and saw him in Corvallis last year. He wasn't wearing some Nike or Oregon State gear. It was just like a black sweater. 
and we talked about the books he was reading and he asked me questions and like anybody who's ever been with him, it's like he's very down to earth and just a steady hand. And I wrote a story last week about Michigan State, you know, where they go from here after everything that had gone wrong over the past year and talking to former players and people around the program, they just needed a steady hand. There have been high highs, low lows all over the place. They needed like that Mark D'Antonio type of person who just keeps it level and goes off from there. And I think in Jonathan Smith, you couldn't do much better than that in terms of the characteristics of someone you want to lead that program at this specific time. I completely agree. And from the start, we were expecting Michigan State to look at program builders. Um, And I think, you know, this year's market, there were a lot of coaches that could have been considered who have won in difficult places. And Oregon State is a difficult place to win. And Jonathan Smith, as a player and as a coach, directly responsible for some of the most successful seasons there. You know, obviously, I think Beavs fans are upset, but I think there's a portion of that fan base that also understands, you know, you're in a situation where you don't know what the future holds for Oregon State, which is difficult to leave, but also maybe easier in other ways of a clear next step that maybe you feel you need to take for your career. You don't have a schedule set. You don't have media rights deal to broadcast your games for next season. Um, and you get to go to the Big Ten and go play a place where, you know, you're going to have all of these resources. We know that his salary is, what is it, in the $7 million it's, range? It's in the $7 million range, a lot more than he was making at Oregon State. And $10 million for the staff salary pool. I was reading Huge number. some quotes about, like, Alan Haller mentioning, hey, you got, like, 53 support staff members, and him being like, oh, whoa, I, I don't need that many. <laughs> like, totally normal person. And I think that that's exactly what Michigan state needs right now. But for as happy as the happy hour segment usually is. And I think there's a lot of Michigan state fans that are learning about Jonathan Smith and getting very excited about what he, he can do. We have seen a number of players hop in the portal, including three quarterbacks. So Chris, what do you make of that piece of this with, with the caveat that the Full portal opens on December 4th for schools and programs that didn't have a coaching change and for players that aren't grad transfers. So there will be a lot more players available to add in about a week. Yeah, you see a lot of guys going in the portal right now. Those are all from places either whose season ended if you're at the FCS level or their uh, coaching, their coach left. You know, Will Rogers at Mississippi State coaching change uh, a, a lot of those type of things. And yeah, Michigan State, three quarterbacks, all three guys who played this year, Sam Levitt, Kate Hauser, Noah Kim. Um, I'm admittedly surprised all of them left. S- Sam Levis, uh, Sam Levitt told rivals that Jonathan Smith didn't offer him coming out of high school last year, a former four star recruit. And so he was kind of miffed at that. Uh, which was an interesting way to go about it. But one of the reasons he didn't offer him was because he had a four-star Aiden Childs coming in to Oregon State. And so now people are wondering, is Aiden Childs going to come with Jonathan Smith to Michigan State? So it's an eye on that. Guys can come back in. And I think it's important to remember as well that Michigan State's NIL situation was kind of messed up. Uh, You might remember toward the middle of the season, a bunch of players reportedly had their NIL deals pulled. It wasn't exactly that, but but they were going through an NIL reset with the new head coach. So it's possible people could come back and things could change here. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's move on into another hire that I think is uh, another logical one, Uh, a hire that is, I think, making a good decision for someone who will be a program builder, has been in a short period of time as the head coach at Duke. There were ups and downs and twists and turns in all of this. And for a period of time on Saturday night, we thought Mark Stoops might be the next Texas A&M head coach. But ultimately, A&M goes and hires Mike Elko from Duke. He's coached there. He was a defensive coordinator there. He's been at Duke, done a really good job in his first two years as becoming as, as, as his own head coach. Uh, he arrived at like 2 a.m., no major fanfare, unlike the last coach. And this just feels like a smart, logical hire. It feels like someone who has a lot of substance incredibly smart, analytical, organized. And one of the things that I always say when we talk about Mike Elko is very few places that he's coached, he's had the most talent or among the most talent in the league he's coached. He's really good at maximizing what he's got on each individual roster. And I know this is a place that isn't going to be patient. They they don't do that. But I thought this was a really good hire for them, a different hire for them and someone who I think will fix some of the most glaring problems at AM right now. Yeah, look, if they had just hired Elko from the beginning, I think everybody would have uh, thought, oh, cool, great hire. But the fact that they tried to hire Mark Stoops, reportedly the board was not in, uh, a big fan and there was also a lot of fan fans not enthused about it. Uh, that kind of changes the way you kind of look at the way they got to Mike Elko. But look, sometimes your second, third, fourth choices end up being the right choices. Uh, you said everything there about what Elko has done uh, on the field as a coach. He's obviously been there and knows that place. Something that jumped out to me is his contract. And good news, Texas A&M learned from the Jimbo Fisher mistake. Uh, Mike Elko's contract, base salary of only $7 million. But the incentives are huge. It's like $3.5 million if he wins the national title. It's like a million if he makes the playoff. And so that is how you should set up these contracts with incentives and not guarantee so much up front. So uh, good job for AM for finally learning how to do a proper contract and not guaranteeing somebody $76 million. So uh, good on them for that. And yeah, I mean, w- with Elko, I, I don't think... We all, on our search for him, I think we settled on Jeff Trailer for that job, but we all thought Elko made a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, coming into the cycle, you would have said Jonathan Smith, Mike Elko, two of the most, two of the best options out there yes, in terms yes. of guys who could make a move. And Michigan State and Texas A&M, the two best jobs went and got them. Sometimes yeah. it's just that simple. Agreed, agreed. I think if I'm remembering correctly from our search for him episode, I think we basically asterisked both of these jobs and said, also Mike Elko, <laughs> because yes. I think either one he would have been a great fit for. Um, 
let's let's hit on a couple others as we are recording this. It's not been announced, but Chris, you are reporting that San Diego State is expected to hire Colorado offensive coordinator Sean Lewis. He was the Kent State head coach. So they go offense. They go different from Brady Hoke and the style of play. We talked a lot about that program, the state they were in. They were not really drawing fans to the new stadium. They lost a lot more than we're used to seeing them lose this year. So I am taking it by you putting this in the happy hour section that you think that this is a really smart hire. Tell me why. It's a complete 180. It's the opposite. It's everything that they need this program to become. For for as good as San Diego State has been over the last 12, 13 years, a lot of 10-win seasons, some conference championships, they had gotten dreadful on offense. And if you'd watched any of their games over the last couple of years, uh, it was obvious. They lost, I think, 6 nothing to Nevada this year. They haven't finished in the top 75 in scoring since 2017. Once you kind of didn't have those Rashad Pennies, those Donnell Pumphreys, the offense had nothing. And so you had to fix the offense with this hire. And in going for Sean Lewis, that's exactly what you're doing. I mean, he was a he did a he did a solid job at Kent State, won a division title, made a couple of bowl games at a program that is probably like the least resourced in all of FBS or one of the least resourced in all of FBS. And you go to San Diego State, which has this brand new stadium that cost $300 million. They need an exciting brand of football. There's a lot of good quarterbacks in Southern California that San Diego State should be getting. And so uh, it may be official by the time you're listening to this, uh, but as of right now, they're closing in on him being the guy. And from a style, again, just like with Michigan State, like what do you? what's the number one thing you want to get out of this job at San Diego State? Fix the offense. Yes. It's exactly what you do with hiring Sean Lewis. Yes, and we saw the reaction. We talked about it after Deion Sanders was essentially demoting Sean Lewis and kind of putting the blame for their losing and their offensive line struggles on him. You saw an outpouring of support from former players, from coaches, from other coaches, present coach, like current coaches, um, who are very upset by that. There's a lot of respect for Sean Lewis, and I think that this is a great spot for him. San Diego State should be, you know, they should be right up there in the Mountain West every single year. We're going to be moving into a 12-team playoff era where there's going to be playoff access as well for the best team in the group of five. So uh, that's that. I think that's absolutely a win for San Diego State and going to put some butts in the seats. Uh, let's go through some Duke and Indiana names to watch. I'll toss out a couple. Uh, for Duke, I'm going to say Manny Diaz and Willie Fritz. Mm-hmm. I think that those would be two I would be looking at if I'm Duke. And then... Uh, Anyone you want to add to the for the Blue Devils? I I think Alex Atkins could be somebody to watch as well. Coached at Charlotte, had a really good year there. Obviously, the offensive coordinator at Florida State, someone who is continuing to rise. Um, But those are names that make a lot of sense. That Duke, Duke, a lot of times, like they do. Like I talked to somebody who talked to Duke in their previous search that led to Elko, and they do generally like somebody who has experience at high academic schools. Yeah. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Willie Fritz, Tulane High Academic School. Mandy Diaz was at Miami and some other places. So yeah, uh, fits what they do there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that job is also you know better place than it was when Elko took it. Um, they yeah. committed a lot of resources, and he had uh, when he got the job. I believe it was a top five assistant coach salary pool in the ACC. So that will be an interesting one to watch uh, for Indiana. Chris, you want to toss out some names to, to keep an eye on there? Yeah. Um, Colin Klein, Kansas state offense coordinator. That name has been around Jerry yep. kill. 
the head coach at Indiana, uh, New Mexico State, uh, former Minnesota, um, Minnesota head coach. Uh, that's been out there. Sharon Moore's name has been out there. I feel like he could probably wait and get a better job, um, but that's that's one to, to watch as well. So with uh, Sharon Moore, first of all, I have two questions for you, just as as a coaching carousel guru here. Um, one is related to timing because we've been seeing a lot of moves made because the portal is opening on December 3rd. Teams that are going to be playing in the college football playoff, like, I guess you could hire an assistant or a coordinator off those staffs and they could just coach their team all the way through. But we've seen that be really challenging for some coaches to, to try to do double duty, recruit, get in the portal. Um, a, do you think that that's, that possibly impacts Sharon more getting a look this year? And B, like, doesn't it kind of feel like Michigan and Jim Harbaugh want him to be the next Michigan head coach? Right. And if you think Jim Harbaugh may leave for the NFL, you may have your guy right there with you. Uh, by the way, like Syracuse is also hiring, hired Fran Brown, an assistant coach at Georgia. So true, these things true. are uh, doable and possible. Fran Brown, by the way, Northeast native, New Jersey native. We have to <coughs> say that on the podcast. Yep, Jersey. Coached at Rutgers and Temple. Um, and so that's happening there. And yeah, it is the timing. Look, the, the timing of the December calendar makes no sense for any reason whatsoever. You've got portal recruiting bowls, coaching changes. It's nonsense. They got to change this. They got to move the signing day back and change a couple of other things. Yes. Yes. Um, one quick to just put a button on that conversation. As we talk about Syracuse and that hire, which has been announced Fran Brown, um, the rare situation, which deserves commendation, uh, Syracuse fired a blackhead coach and hired a blackhead coach. You don't see that all the time. And we, are constantly paying attention to diversity and especially in a sport where there are so many uh, black players that that is just very notable. So shout out to Syracuse for doing that. Um, also, I was part of our staff effort that did a New Jersey recruiting high school recruiting confidential a couple of years ago. Nothing but rave reviews for Fran Brown. So he understands yeah. the Northeast. That's exactly what Syracuse needed. Um, so that one also will go in the happy hour segment. Chris, uh, one last thing, because it's been a newsy early part of the week already. Got a new member of Conference USA, Delaware, the Blue Hens. We're getting more winged helmets in FBS football. Yes, uh, joining 2025-26 will be the 11th member of Conference USA after Kennesaw State comes in next year. 135th member of FBS. And this is another one of those moves that makes a lot of sense for Conference USA and everybody. They've got a they've got an athletics budget that's um, in range with the upper end of the group of five. Got a lot of donors, pretty good facilities, just opened up a new sports performance center. So um, that makes a lot of sense on, on both parts there. So they're coming. Yes, they do have the Michigan helmets. Yes, they do have the Michigan helmets because of a former Michigan player, coach, who brought them in, actually took that to several schools in his career. So... Michigan got it from Princeton, you know, the whole thing. So, yes, uh, a Delaware-Michigan game is hopefully a non-conference game we can set up in the future, make it look like a practice. Okay, and in terms Chris, of uh, Conference USA... Yeah, is, is anyone else coming? That gets them at 11. They want to get to 12. I, I think the leader in the clubhouse would be UMass, um, but UMass would have to join as an all-sports member, not just football. And they're a founding member of the A-10, so that's something they kind of got to deal with. Other potential FCS names have been Tarleton State in Texas, Central Arkansas, Missouri State, uh, Stephen F. Austin. But remember, 
moving up from FCS to FBS now, you got to pay $5 million to do that. If Delaware had done this like two months ago, it would have only cost him $5,000. It's going to cost him $5 million now. They are going to have the money to do it. Um, so that is, you know, as they try to make it tougher to come into FBS, those are things to keep in mind. UMass being in FBS already would not have to deal with that. So we'll see. All right, let's move over into our On the Rock segment. Uh, lots to get into here because there are a lot of really hard jobs that we're going to put in this category because these are just, you know, it's it's hard to find someone. It's hard to win, even if you, fi- you hire a good coach. Um, so we will get into that in just a second. But, Chris, we've got to start with the news of the day on Tuesday. Some shockwaves through college football, all sports. That Bobby Petrino, yes, Bobby Petrino, was being hired again by Arkansas as the offensive coordinator. Sam Pittman got another year, but things are dicey, very disappointing this season, offensively disappointing. So you bring in Bobby Petrino, he who had the infamous motorcycle accident, uh, the mistress lied to his bosses. There's a lot of things that happened. The way that this news broke, I also think is funny because you have it being put out by ESPN that that Arkansas is vetting this situation, which Google uh, talk to anyone who well, still works at Arkansas. Like, right. It happened here. Yeah, um, just, I'm sure they have that file in HR. It's not. Yeah, like it find. didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. And then like an hour later, it's like it's being finalized. So it was it was floated, not vetted. And then it was done. Uh, I don't think it's been officially announced as we are recording this on Tuesday night. But uh, by all accounts, it is happening. And Chris, this has to be one of the most stunning return to a past job hires that we've ever seen in college football, right? I'm trying to think what's comparable. And there's not much i i mean the only the like, only uh, the only sports comp that i saw people that sounded and felt a little bit right was lebron going back to the yes Cavs. yeah a couple people said hey it's like lebron spurn it but that's like that's a lot different that's a lot different and by the way like the bobby petrino ended arkansas it's a lot more than just the famous neck brace photo like our david oven did a really big story on it last year about everything that was going on and the mistress and the job and and all kinds of stuff. It, it was a lot. And by the way, apparently Arkansas has a rule that uh, someone who's been fired from the, the school, not in good standing, cannot be rehired unless there's maybe like some sort of presidential exemption. But they're also claiming, hey, that rule was put in place after Bobby Petrino. So the so the rule shouldn't apply to him was one of the theories that was floated on as well. Whatever it is, the first press conference where Hunter Juracek, the O.C., uh, the athletic director has to explain this. Yep. It's going to be mm-hmm. fascinating. And it should be him and not yes. just Sam Pittman who has to answer. I would love to hear from the president as well. I mean, like. Yeah, that too. I, of course. I think. Yeah. I mean, that that is a higher uh, that is just truly stunning. And like, is it even a good hire? I mean, Bobby Petrino was was on was working with the A&M offense this year. That got Jimbo Fisher fired. Like, is this even a guarantee that it's going to work? Yeah, I mean, like, he did an okay job at uh, Texas A&M this year. I know they had I mean, some injuries, kind of Wegman and stuff. But, like, yeah, but he, so, remember, he was at um, he was at Missouri State last year, and they went up and put up 27 points on Arkansas when he was the head coach at Missouri State. 
And here, here's the question I have, though. Over under six games until Bobby Petrino is the interim head coach because Sam Pittman's going into that season on the hot seat. And it really feels like one of those situations where yeah. if things don't go well, you get an early season change and we say, hey, yeah. why didn't we do this last year? Because here are their first five games. Tell me if you think he, tell me if you think he makes it through this. Arkansas Pine Bluff, yes. At Oklahoma State, UAB, Texas A&M in Arlington, and Texas at home. No. Followed by La Tech and LSU. Like, it, it's a tough Could start be, to the yeah, schedule. Yeah, like a two and three start. And There's then, a two and three, three and two type of start there. Yeah. You know, where, where um, and yeah, and, and, and I mean, look, but maybe Bobby Petrino doesn't become the interim head coach. He wasn't the interim head coach at AM. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of, a, a trend you see now is interim head coaches are the recruiter, the guy who has the best relationships with the players because you want him to be the interim head coach so he can keep the players together, keep the interim coach together. Uh, you've seen that at a number of places. So no guarantee that Bobby Petrino becomes interim head, co- interim head coach, but considering he literally has coached at that school, mm. that seems like one that might be the one that you do. I, I'm stunned by this. Yeah, same. Um, just absolutely stunned. Feels very desperate. Um, feels very short-term thinking. I would definitely like to hear from the people in charge on that one. Okay, let's talk about some of these other jobs. Um, We put them in this category just because coaching searches are hard, and some of these jobs are hard. Um, So let's start with Chris. It looks like, did you rank these jobs by best to hardest? Pretty much. On on accident, but yes, that is basically the way it came. You've got Houston at the top. So Houston, as we're recording this, these jobs are all open. We're recording this Tuesday evening, early evening. Um. Willie Fritz, Jeff Trailer, Gary Patterson. Let's talk about these names. Those are the names we're hearing a lot of. Starting to hear a bit more of Gary Patterson. Willie Fritz, a lot of uh, attention, respect there for what he's done at Tulane. They're, what, 23-3 and three over the last two years. He's won everywhere he's been. He coached at Sam Houston State for a while. Makes a lot of sense. The buyout is certainly manageable. Jeff Trailer, UTSA head coach. On the surface, you look at this, I look at this and think, this is one of the biggest layups I've ever seen in coaching searches. Like, you, Jeff Trailer was, you were worried A&M could take him, or he could yeah. go to Baylor, or, or, or Arkansas. And it turns out A&M didn't hire him, and the other two jobs didn't open. This is a perfect setup. Heck, heck there were rumors last year that Houston may be firing uh, Dana Holgerson to hire Trailer. However... Trailer has a $7 million buyout right now because of the extremely school-friendly contract he signed last year, or two years ago, sorry. And so, you know, Houston paid, I think, $15 million to buy out Dana Holgerson. I don't remember if that offsets or not, but it sounds like that could be a bit of a hurdle. I personally think you would make a lot of sense to do it, uh, but keep an eye on those two. And then, yeah, Gary Patterson's name today, Tuesday, starting to kind of mm. pop around as a possibility um, a lot of this comes down to Tillman Fertitta, you know, on the board, the Houston Rockets owner, the mega donor uh, play has a lot of sway in a lot of this. So keep an eye on those three should wrap up pretty soon, I think. Or, or next week, I guess, because Willie Fritz is playing in a conference championship game. And that was one of the things that uh, impacted last year's coaching carousel was yeah. Tulane playing I, <laughs> for a group of five spot. in the. Bowl. I remember being on the AAC call last year for the championship game. And Willie Fritz gets asked like four different times 
from Georgia Tech reporters or Atlanta reporters about if he has taken the Georgia Tech job. And I was like, are we listening to the questions being asked? He was asked the same question four times on this 15-minute press conference. I was so confused because it, it was all but done. It was real close. But Georgia Tech forced the issue, wanted something to happen really quick. And Willie was like, I got a championship game to play here. And also Georgia Tech doesn't have a lot of money. So he ended up staying, had another good year. He'll be in the he's in the mix for a few jobs. Um, okay, Chris, Middle Tennessee State parts ways with Rick Stockstill after 18 years. He's getting a five million dollar buyout. Uh, a was a which surprising. Is, which is a ridiculous. That, that's a crazy number for a group of five school. Five that million is, buyout. The yeah. reason is because he had a he had like a Kirk Ferentz like contract where like I think it was like anytime he gets to like six wins or something he gets an extension. It was a contract that they couldn't get out of. They eventually had to pull the donors together and get enough people to willing to pay it. So didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I just want to emphasize how crazy of a buyout that is for a group of high school. It, it is. Um, but also this is just a, you know, a, a big change. Some, someone who's been the head coach for 18 years, this job is now open. Um, I know you have spent a lot of time and have covered MTSU. So what, what do you make of this opening and, and just the, the, the decision to move on from Stockstill? There's a lot of potential here. I mean, you mentioned 18 years. This, this, this is in Murfreesboro, right outside Nashville. And if you want a sense of how it's changed, think about Nashville 18 years ago and think about Nashville now. Uh, someone, someone close to the program said to me the other day, uh, we pop a bottle of champagne every time a new high school opens up in the area because that place is growing like crazy. A lot of coaches are going to want this job, even though it's in Conference USA in a tough spot. Uh, they're building a new facility up there uh, real soon. And um, some names for that. I think you could see Alex Atkins, the Florida State OC. Uh, Adam Fuller, the Florida State defense coordinator as well. Both could be in the mix there. Anthony Jones, the TC running backs coach, is a former Memphis uh, high school coach. Um, so that is going to take a little bit. I think they're going to try to get to the end of this week before they narrow it down, then get into next week to kind of finalize it. So there's going to be a little bit of time there. They're going to do a pretty big pool, but... You got a lot of donors there and people who they need to reawaken a lot of that. I think things have gotten really stale under Stockstill, and now this is finally the chance to get out of that and try to take this program into the future and aim for more than, you know, going six and six. And I think there's a lot of potential here. Okay, so let's group our last couple of jobs in the same category because these are all hard jobs. It's really hard to win. Extremely hard. Uh, Louisiana Monroe, New Mexico and UTEP. Chris, like, it, I, I don't think it's a surprise. Certainly wasn't to you, someone who's tracking all of the potential openings that these jobs opened. Um, they are difficult, but there are certainly people who want to become a head coach, who want to take these jobs, who could be a fit with their backgrounds for these jobs. Uh, so let's run through ULM, New Mexico, UTEP. Yeah, ULM, probably the toughest job in all of FBS. Like, they only started doing cost of attendance in like 2021, like forget NIL, like they, they they were not even at cost of attendance yet. New AD there. John Hartwell comes from uh, formerly Utah state, really amping up the fundraising names to watch. Bryant Vincent, the former UAB interim head coach, Willie Simmons, Florida A&M head coach, uh, Tulane offense coordinator, Slade Nagel, LSU quarterbacks coach, Joe Sloan, although we can probably wait for a better job. Uh, Southeast Louisiana coach, Frank Skelfo. Uh, Julian Griffin, the UTSA running backs coach, was a former player there. Those are some names to watch for that job. New Mexico, uh, Matt Wells, who we mentioned at Utah State, 
I'm sorry, Oregon State uh, in the mix here as well. Van Malone, uh, Kansas State defensive assistant coach. Bronco Mendenhall used to coach here as well. Potential there. Um, I've heard I've heard they want to emphasize head coaching experience uh, after the Danny Gonzalez ex- uh, experience previously. Brian Harson, Boise State head coach, formerly potential as well. And we just saw and, him. Did wasn't he at the uh, Civil War? Did we see him showing up on the sidelines or in the crowds recently? Harson? I did not watch. I did not watch much of that game live. So I, uh, mm. you, you tell me. All right, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he was. Pretty sure he was. All right, UTEP. Uh, Casey Dunn, Oklahoma State offense coordinator. Uh, Jeff Grimes, I guess now former Baylor offense coordinator, who uh, just got let go. He's an alum there. So was so was a uh, Mac Leftwich, the Texas State offense coordinator, and potentially Idaho head coach Jason Eck. The AD at UTEP is a Idaho guy, so potential connection there. But yeah, these are three of the absolute toughest jobs in all of FBS. Whether it's money, whether it's location, whether it's support, these are like the bottom jobs. And there will be a lot of overlap in the candidate pools uh, for them. Absolutely. All right. So that is your rundown of the open jobs and the tough situations at some of these places or tough decisions that some of these schools or candidates have to make. Again, we're recording this Tuesday evening. So we apologize if any of those jobs have been filled by the time you're listening to this. Um, We we solicited some questions in our open bar segment. Um, we put out a call for a mailbag each week on Mondays and Tuesdays. You guys can submit the questions to us and we will get to them. You can also email us as well. Um, we will take questions that way. So we'll do, we will do two of these here. Um, they are related to coaching hires. So, From Lee R., I understand that lots of folks, the athletic and throughout sports media, predicted and encouraged Texas A&M to hire Mike Elko. Understandable. He's a great coach. But as a Duke grad and a supporter of the football program that's been been through some pretty serious lows, I want to know your thoughts on this move from Duke's perspective. On top of other promises Elko made to Duke players and recruits, he told the team as late as Friday he was staying. Then Saturday came around and he told them he was going to make a decision the next day and then was on a plane to College Station mere hours later. What? is the best way to handle this kind of transition. And Lee, Lee R does not think Elko handled it correctly. So I will start by saying that I think these, when you are trying to figure out what you're supposed to say, um, and then if you decide to take a job after you commit to staying, um, or you commit to staying when you're in consideration for the Michigan State job, but then Texas A&M is actually interested in you, uh, it's really complicated. I think these situations are really hard. I think moves, news moves very quickly. And in a lot of these hires and firings, we're going to, and even the ones that are still to come with a lot of these hires, like people will find out on social media. And that's just part of how this stuff works nowadays. Um, the idea of being able to tell a team in person and call everyone together typically doesn't happen. I mean, we even saw, Chris, we even saw in some of the firings, at least one last week, there was a report that they were that the AED was intending to fire that coach. So that means that the coach hadn't even been told yet. So I, I just feel like there's not a great way to do this. Um, in, in and I don't know, Chris. Do you think that there is a better approach than kind of just trying to get through each day and you know not not lie? I mean, not get caught in a lie. I think you could change your your you could change your feelings or your opportunity could change and then it kind of feels that way but I I just I don't know what the what the right strategy would be if I'm a coach 
Yeah, it's it's impossible because I mean, remember, like Elko, like clearly, you know, wasn't didn't want her at least wasn't in the mix at the end at Michigan State, and we all thought Texas A&M was hiring Mark Stoops. Like that was the that was the plan. Like that's what they were going to do. So. Matt Galco says, all right, I guess I'm staying. And then things change at Texas A&M. I have heard from a lot of Duke people who are, who are upset about the lack of communication since Elko left. And I don't even know yet if he has, but that there wasn't even like a statement of like, thanks to Duke for everything. It was very, very just things were cut off very quickly. I don't know the dynamics behind as to why. But yeah, they moved very quickly on that. And it there, there's no good way to answer this. There just isn't. Um, I, the best way is basically like, hey, always looking out for what's best for my family. Never say never, but I, I love it here and I, I'd very much love to stay here. And that's it. But there's yeah. there's no way to make everybody happy. No, there isn't. And we've seen people do it after saying, I mean, Mel Tucker, right? When Colorado about complaining yeah. of players going the transfer portal and then he changes jobs. And um, after saying he also he also said he wasn't going to Michigan State. Remember, yes, he tweeted and then, it. Yep. And then, and he, then he ends up going when they circle back. So like. You know, there's there's always there's if you think it's been tough with your former coach, there's probably like 10 other examples of fan bases that feel very jilted. I, I think back about Oklahoma last year um, and how that fan base or two years ago now felt about Lincoln Riley leaving um, after the Bedlam game. So there there's always something and you wish that people could handle it differently. But again, I think, as you mentioned, Mark Stoops circumstances changed in that and we had put in our coaching tracker that you know Elko had said uh that he intended to stay at Duke but if AM was serious about him you know we thought he'd be receptive he was and he was off to go so we will continue to see the fallout again i think i think that that job is more attractive than it was when Elko took it so we'll see what uh direction that they go with they hire um okay here is an emailed question from Robert H and Chris I'll have you go first on this one what intrigues me about the Smith hire is that he has zero ties in the Midwest. Michigan State usually hires with ties to them. I'm trying to think of zero ties to the area, and I think of guys like Rich Rodriguez that he comes to mind, maybe Brian Kelly. Are there many data points on this type of hire? How does he bridge the gap? I think the way it's not always about specific connections. It's also about personalities because the, the most – Obvious example of somebody completely out of water coming in and working was Matt Rule at Baylor. He's a Northeastern dude through and through, and he took the Baylor job over Oregon. And what did he do when he got to Baylor? He immediately ingratiated himself with the Texas high school coaches to the point that even when he was in the NFL, he was still speaking at the Texas high school coaches association and stuff like that. So it's got to be someone who completely jumps into the culture, whatever that culture is. And I think the culture at Oregon State and in the Pacific Northwest is very similar to the Midwest. I, I mentioned Jonathan Smith's personality earlier in this podcast, and anybody who knows him knows that he's going to fit with what Michigan State people and people around the Midwest just want. So I, I think it's a very good culture fit, even if it's not specific connections to high school players. That is something he's going to absolutely have to make, uh, make up grounds in, and you're going to hire coaches who do that. Sounds like he's keeping Harlan Barnett on staff, who has been at Michigan State for a very, very, very long time. So that'll help. Um, yes, every new coach is trying to, it's a mix of connections versus what you want on the field. Um, I, I honestly, again, you never know if any coach is going to work or not work, but I, I completely believe Smith will fit into the Midwest culture and what Michigan State wants. 
Agree. And so much of this is who you hire. And um, that is still DBD. So we will continue to track that. I think about Gary Patterson all the time. He didn't, I don't think he said the school exactly, but when he was in the mix for Michigan back in the day, he said, I'm a beer drinker and that's a wine and cheese crowd. It just was never going to work. You know, that, that, that type of stuff is very important. It is. All right. Well, we got to wrap things up. So we will do it like we always do a last call, a cheers or a jeers. It's whatever we want to say as the bar is closing. We're getting one last round. Um, Chris, I'll go first. There was no other possible last call for me this week. It was obvious. It's the Pop-Tart. It's the edible mascot. It's the fact that there is going to be some sort of giant Pop-Tart presented to the winners of the Pop-Tart Bowl on December 28th, and they are going to eat it. Now, this is not going to be the mascot who is running around during the game and in introductions. We got some clarity about that. There will be a human in a mascot costume, and then there will be an edible version of the Pop-Tart mascot presented in the post game. We do not know what flavor it's going to be. That is going to be a surprise. I really hope that the winning team gets to pick its preferred flavor as part of the run-up to this. I don't know that they will, but it's going to be fun. And I really did like the idea that like maybe the actual costume was edible that a person would be in. And then we'd be lifting up a human inside an edible pop tart. But I don't think that's how this is going to look. However, I am always a fan of more foods sponsoring bowl games and doing goofy things with it. And this 100% qualifies actually a gooey thing that they are going to do with their item. And I cannot wait. I will also say that the folks who run the pop tarts bowl have told me They've invited me to cover it, but I don't think I'll be there. But if some of our colleagues are there, because hopefully, like maybe Notre Dame or somebody gets sent there, where, where um, is this? Where is this game? What? What? This? Which? Bowl this is did one this of the other Cheez It Bowls. Remember, there were two. It's the. Is it the Orlando Cheez It Bowl or the Arizona Cheez It Bowl? I think it's in Florida. Should we check okay. that while we're? All right, let's find out. Pop Tarts Bowl. Sorry, I thought, I thought we knew what it was. Um. Pop-Tarts edible mascot is the second thing that pops up. Yep, it's in Orlando. Um, So this is going to be a matchup uh, where, you know, again, hopefully like Notre Dame is there or something. I would love to see Sam Hartman eating a Pop-Tart to end his collegiate career. I feel like he would have a great time uh, doing that. But I so this is going to be uh, a a scene. I am excited to watch this game, but I will say that if any of our colleagues are going to be covering this, um, I have been told there's like a Pop-Tart tasting and like a special event that they would be invited to and they could try different flavors. So I'm preemptively jealous of all of that. I wish I could be there, but I cannot wait for the post game. I don't think it will be. Remember the first year of the Mayo Bowl when we thought someone was going to get mayo dumped on them and it didn't happen. Yeah, I, I then think they this, fixed it. We we, we need to publicly we need to publicly pressure the Pop Tarts Bowl into having the winner eat a person in a Pop Tart <laughs> costume. That it has to be that we have to have like if whatever not, you got to do to make it work. If it's not year one, it better be year two. But cannot wait to see the edible mascot, the the world's first edible mascot. Edible mascot. So that is my last call. Cheers to you, Pop I mean, Turns Bowl. 
I mean, technically, Arkansas's mascot's pretty edible if you want to. So I, I think we can make. Some I think that worse. was um, maybe the darkest response to this news was a lot of people saying that any mascot can be edible if you try hard enough. I mean, a little dark. It's true. Little okay, dark. so if, if you're gonna pick, if you're gonna pick your flavor, which mm. would you pick? Real quick, I would. I would probably be Wildberry with Frosted Strawberry as my runner up. But I'm a big pop. I'm a big Wildberry Pop Tart fan. That would be my choice. So the promotional materials that they sent out, it looks like a frosted strawberry, which I think is like a very classic look for the Pop-Tart. So I don't know if that's to try to throw us off the scent, like that they would not do a frosted strawberry, but I do think that that would look very clean and everyone would know immediately what it is. Personally, I am a brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tart fan. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would want to eat that or a cherry cherry frosted i would also eat but i think i think strawberry would be uh universally beloved or maybe s'mores i think s'mores would be very popular as well so yes ultimately i think i think i'm saying strawberry for just like the classic classic look yeah all right my last call is for the uh virginia stadium grounds crew at scott stadium uh if you didn't see this uh after virginia tech beat virginia on the road head coach brent pry brought the team out to the field about 30 to 45 minutes later to take a photo. And while they were doing that, the sprinklers came on and doused the Virginia tech team in water as they ended up taking the picture. And it actually looked like it was a pretty good um, photo that they got. However, uh, the groundskeeper, Jesse Pritchard said on Twitter that uh, he did not do it on purpose. It's an automatic system that came on as it's scheduled to do after every game. No team in his 19 years had ever come back uh, to take a picture on the field. Um, I'm not buying it. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they did it on purpose. Make that your story. Go with it. It's perfect. Yes, we love rivalries. We love petty decisions. Just let's pretend that it was. I don't I don't want to pretend that it was on a timer. So, Jesse, we're not believing you. That's how we are going to wrap up this show. Uh, wrap up Rivalry Week, which we love. Uh, with the sprinklers in Charlottesville. And I just wanted to thank all of you for listening. Uh, We know you've got a lot of options out there for college football podcasts. And we on the Until Saturday feed, and especially Chris and myself here on Power Hour, we really appreciate you making time for us. Uh, There's still so much to come here in the postseason, and we will be here every week. Uh, giving you coverage of that. So in the meantime, be sure you're following the Until Saturday podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll be notified when new episodes are up. We always appreciate five-star ratings and reviews. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel uh, and join us every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday on our live streams. If you prefer written word updates, coaching, tracking news, all of the above, sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter. Uh, But for Chris Vanini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. This is Power Hour, and we'll see you next time.